Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. This is Ben Isker, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I'm joined by Trina Tsideros, and she leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks so much, Ben. Happy to be here. Well, glad you could join us. I think we got some really important things to talk about on today's podcast. One of the things that we talked about previously was the racial and ethnic background of some of the children affected by the pandemic. And today, I think we're going to jump into what does race and ethnicity mean in terms of effects of the pandemic to the larger population? So let's go ahead and jump into that. And I guess the first question I would start with is, what do the numbers look like in terms of the adults that are getting COVID-19 and the effects that it's having on them? So how, how does that look in terms of the numbers of people affected? Yeah, yeah. So this is the real story of the pandemic, I would say. And I, I just want to preface this by highlighting a, a sentiment that has been shared via social media by various folks, well-meaning people, that this pandemic experience is sort of a broad shared experience. I think there was, in fact, a, a well-known epidemiologist who wrote something like, this pandemic is one of the most intense, broadly shared experiences in history. That's the real story. The schisms are a distraction. And I'd like to counter with the fact that in truth, every time we look, it is clear that the pandemic has been experienced very differently depending on whether you are white, Hispanic, or Black. And here's some some thoughts around that. When pollers ask consumers about their experience with the pandemic, it falls along racial lines very clearly. So if you asked back in April, when surveyors asked Americans how often they discuss COVID-19 with others. So how, you know, sort of how obsessively are you following this? White folks told the pollers that, you know, about 10% of them said that they were talking about the COVID-19 pandemic almost all of the time. Compare that to Hispanic Americans, 19% said that they were talking about the pandemic almost all of the time. And if you asked Black Americans the same question, 26% were saying that they were discussing this almost all of the time. The same pattern follows when surveyors, the same surveyors, same period of time, that first wave, asked Americans about following the national news related to the coronavirus outbreak. And Black Americans were far more likely to say that they were following topics like the health impact on people like me, the ability of hospitals to treat patients, federal government actions, the economic impact, all of these topics. Black Americans were far more likely to say that they were following these topics very closely compared to white Americans. So one good example, when they asked Americans, if they were following the health impact on people like me in the national news, 55% of Black Americans said that they were following that very closely. 36% of white Americans were saying they were following that topic very closely. If you ask the same kinds of questions, same period of time about the need to stay tuned to the news on the pandemic, 76% of white Americans said that they felt like they had to take breaks from the news, that it was too much. 60% of Black Americans said that they needed to take breaks. 39% said that they felt the need to stay tuned into the news on the pandemic, whereas only 23% of white Americans said the same. Hispanic Americans fell somewhere in between. 
So I think we see this pattern over and over of the perception of the pandemic being very different and much more intense among Black Americans. And there's a reason for this. And that is that Black Americans have died from COVID-19 in far greater numbers disproportionately compared to other groups. Over and over, Black Americans have been more likely to fall sick with COVID-19, to be diagnosed positive with COVID-19, to be hospitalized with COVID-19, and to, to die of COVID-19. If you look at data early on in the pandemic, the numbers are, are just show how disproportionate it was. In my own home state of Illinois, this was the first wave of the pandemic, these data, 14% of the Illinois population are Black. 42% of the deaths to COVID-19 due to COVID-19 were um, Black Americans. So 14% of the population, 42% of deaths. That was not just Illinois. Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, 26% of the population is Black. 73% of the deaths were Black. Louisiana, 32% of the population of Louisiana is Black. 70% of the deaths were Black. And so over and over, we've seen this pattern. And this is why when you ask Americans what your experience of the pandemic has been, it is sharply different because of this. Black Americans are more likely to know someone who has been hospitalized or died of COVID-19. They're more likely to have experienced this themselves or have a family member that has experienced this. And so this is the story of the pandemic so far. And Hispanic Americans, are right there in the middle between white Americans and black Americans in terms of the experiences with hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, this is something we've certainly heard a lot about, especially when it comes to the social determinants of health. And in our own research has shown over the past year or two that there are incredible disparities in terms of not only the way the health system reacts and, and takes care of communities, but also the larger ecosystem of, of housing and employment. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. When we, when we look at some of these disparities, you've talked about the broader demographics, but there's an angle to where people work, right? And who has to go out of their homes and work versus those that maybe have the ability to stay in their home and have that, and have that privilege. So let's dig a little bit into the employment issue and what that means for exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think it's clear that the essential workers who during the lockdown and post-lockdown have been out delivering our packages, working in grocery stores, working in meat packing plants are disproportionately Hispanic and Black Americans. And in every nook and cranny that you look, this is true. I mean, a good example is we saw the sort of rash of um, outbreaks in meatpacking plants over the first part of this pandemic. And if you look at who works in animal slaughtering and processing, if you look at the labor data and the U.S. Census data, you see that the Folks working in animal slaughtering and processing are overwhelmingly male, Black, and Hispanic. And that's just a, one example of, of why this pandemic has, at least in its first six months, been so disproportionately affecting Black and Hispanic Americans. It's because over and over, if you look at who's working, in these areas that that is who. That is not the sole reason. So I don't want to simplify this or oversimplify the this very, very complex situation that the pandemic has been, but it is one of the factors that for sure has has made an impact. 
I mean, another one that that is true that just kind of plays to the social determinants of health um, angle to this is that if you look at just something like how long does it take to get your test result back, right? So you go out, you get a PCR, you know, PCR test for COVID-19, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I should say. And how long does it take for you to get your test result back? Well, there was a study that looked at this. The mean waiting time nationally was four days. The median waiting time was three days. But for African-Americans, it was five days. And Hispanic Americans, it was 4.6 days. You might think, well, that's just another, you know, one more day. Well, it makes a huge difference in a large population because over that period of time, people's lives are disrupted for a longer period of time. It also means that there's more time to potentially spread the virus to your loved ones, to your friends, to your family. And so it makes a big difference that one day, two days is 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 consequential. And so this is just another sort of nook and cranny that you can look at and see that there's a disparity between white Americans or the overall population and African Americans and Hispanic Americans just in testing waiting times alone. One of the things that I know we've also discussed is 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 the cost associated and you know some of the information we're seeing from the rapid tests are that there's a you know there could be a large out of pocket cost which can really affect people's ability to you know get access to these tests where the public testing centers which often have you know free tests there might only be a few of those in in communities with with longer wait lines so certainly I think you know, we're seeing cost also rear its head in in this pandemic as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, um, there's been some writing recently about the difficulty in getting children tested. So it's, it's not so easy. A lot of places will not test children under the age of six. Some places won't test children, you know, under like say the age of 10. And, and then you have schools that are saying you, in order to come back to school, let's say you've been quarantined or you, you have had a positive test. The s- schools will say you can't come back unless you have a negative, you can show us a negative test. Well, to go get that actually is kind of difficult. And the places that will do it are often places that will do it for cash, rapid test, but the cash price pretty high. Here in Chicago, there's a place you can go get your kid tested. It's $150 cash. And a lot of parents, that's a that's quite a hardship to pony up that money in order to get your kid back into school. So that's a, a huge issue as well that plays into all of this. And it matters. You are less likely now to die of COVID-19 if you are hospitalized in almost every age group because we are better at treating COVID-19 than we were at the beginning of this, which makes a lot of sense. It's not even just the, the therapies that are out there. It's just that doctors and nurses and everybody is better at treating this than they were, let's say, back in April. And so if it's disproportionately hitting one group of people in our country early on, those folks suffered more and were more likely to die than they would have if it had been sort of spread out evenly across the population. So it has a real impact. Um, Just being first is worst uh, with a pandemic. We're now starting to see a lot about the vaccines. I know we've, we've, we've talked about that and we'll continue to cover vaccines on this, on this podcast and some of the progress there. But vaccines, in order to be seen as safe and effective, need to have great representation, deep representation in those trials. 
uh, we're starting to see some numbers in terms of surveys about people's likelihood of getting vaccinated. And that is also breaking down somewhat along racial and ethnic lines. Could you talk to us about what we're seeing there? And then maybe we can talk about some opportunities of what, what we can do about that. Yeah, yeah. So there is a long uh, terrible history between with medical research and Black Americans, the exploitation of Black Americans in medical research. And you don't have to go very far to sort of raise up a, a especially horrific example of that, which would be the Tuskegee syphilis study. But that's just one of many examples. So there is a lot of mistrust between the Black Americans and the medical community in general and in research. And so one issue that vaccine trials are running up against now, which is just the fruits of our long history playing out, is that in order to do proper trials, they need a representation of the American population and they need Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and white Americans to participate in these vaccine trials. And it is very difficult to get minorities to participate for these reasons. So that's one issue. The second issue is when these vaccines are rolled out, you really want everybody to participate, right? If it's a safe and effective vaccine shown through phase three clinical trials and it is properly licensed or, or EUA'd, then you want large numbers of Americans in the order that, that has been prioritized by the government to line up and get the vaccine because you want the, the immunity to, to sort of be done as quickly as possible. And so when they've asked, um, right now there are surveys asking Americans, are you likely to get vaccinated with a first generation COVID-19 vaccine? 51% of white Americans, if you ask them that question, will say, yes, I'm likely to get it. 56% of Hispanic Americans say that they would be likely to get it. And 28% of Black Americans say that they'd be likely to get it. And 72% of Black Americans say they're not likely to get it. And that is that mistrust playing out. And that is a large hurdle that the medical community and, and the public health community will have to really work on because that, that those numbers are very low. And this is exactly the Black Americans have been hit so hard that um, clearly the protection is um, would be important to the Black community, to Black Americans, but this long history is, is definitely a barrier. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about some of the social determinant research from the last few years, and when we see case studies of what really is effective, so often it's people from the community that actually have the most influence on a community, you know, as opposed to a, an external organization coming in. And, and that has played out around the world. In our research, we, we looked at some of the global case studies, including in India with ASHA workers who are health workers from local areas that serve that area in South Texas with Promotores, which are, again, local health workers influencing in, in that local area. And that may be, Trina, one of the ways that we see some movement in terms of getting people vaccinated and getting more confidence is, is actually making sure that these community organizations are activated. I wanted to bring you in, though, on what are some of the barriers. And we do have an anti-vaxxer movement in the U.S., obviously very different from some of the, the, the racial and ethnic breakdown and background on vaccines. This is more of a widespread kind of general mistrust of science and medicine. And just from your work over the years, 
studying and following that movement, what are some of the ways that that could be counteracted and, and people can get better information and, and build trust? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, that is a long running issue that grew up out of a long history. There's all, almost as long as there have been vaccines, there's been folks who have been skeptical and about it because it is one of the very few things that we do where we have healthy people who are injected with something, right? So it's natural that it's going to raise concerns in people. But with the advent of this anti the most modern anti-vaxxer movement, there has been a rising percentage of Americans who are opting their children out. And now we're having these sort of outbreaks of mumps and measles that are happening yearly in the United States and elsewhere in Europe as well. The media has to get smart, prioritize science and scientists and research over emotional stories and celebrity anti-vaxxers. And then the second thing is the researchers and scientific community needs to be out there all the time spreading the science, spreading the facts, not being reticent about it. Pediatricians need to be out there. A lot of progress can be made by a pediatrician spending time with a reluctant parent, actually walking through the facts, the safety, the clinical trialing that's done on vaccines, talking through all of it. It's a extra step more work, but the research has shown that that is actually effective as well. So I think that the way to fight the anti-vaxxer misinformation that's been sort of clouding a lot of thinking around the safety of vaccines is to fight it with science and facts and for, you know, for the media to stop highlighting or prioritizing or privileging the stories that are spouted out by celebrities who are not, you know, have no medical training or scientific training at all. Well, I think that's a that's very illuminating. And as we get closer to the potential launch of a vaccine, I, I think it helps for everyone to remember that creating and developing the vaccine is only one part of the story and actual vaccinations are, are, what, are what's going to turn the corner on the, on the pandemic. And those, those bridges have to be built. Uh, and again, thank you for the drill down on what we're seeing generally on race and ethnicity with the pandemic. I think it does reflect a lot of the challenges and kind of the, the, the chasms that we have within our our health system already where minority communities are underrepresented in care, underrepresented by clinicians and in leadership. And certainly we're seeing it now in in the effects of the pandemic. On our next podcast, we're going to drill down and we'll have Science Day. And so we'll get into some of what we're seeing in terms of antibody studies, an update on what's happening on vaccine development, and a few other uh, scientific studies that have come out. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for joining us for the Next in Health podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.